WRFI Community Radio News is made possible by listeners like you. Help us tell important stories about your community. Head to WRFI.org slash donate. Live from the Kenny Ritter Studios in the historic Clinton House in downtown Ithaca, New York, this is WRFI Community Radio News for Monday, October 12th, 2020. Happy Indigenous Peoples Day. I'm Michaela Savitt. And I'm Esther Rakusen. After the headline news, you'll hear conversations about how resource policies affect communities of color and the environmental challenges that Cayuga Nation is facing. But first, here's the weather forecast, courtesy of the National Weather Service. Tonight, chance of rain, otherwise cloudy with lows in the lower 50s. Tomorrow, cloudy, becoming sunny, with a chance of morning rain and highs in the mid-60s. Tomorrow night, mostly clear with lows in the lower 40s. Looking to Wednesday, sunny with highs in the upper 60s. And now, here's tonight's news for Ithaca and Watkins Glen. Ithaca police arrested two people yesterday who were involved with a protest that took place for over an hour outside of IPD headquarters. These were the first arrests made in Ithaca in relation to any of the local protests for racial justice that have been held in the last four months. While occupying a block of Clinton Street, some rally attendees spray-painted graffiti on the street and on the police building itself, which Ithaca Police Chief Dennis Nayer says was a cause for police involvement. Both protesters arrested declined to use use their names, according to the Ithaca Voice. One is 15 years old, and the other cited privacy concerns. After detention by law enforcement for less than 45 minutes, both suspects were released. The 15-year-old, after being released into a legal guardian's custody, was charged with making graffiti. The other, according to police, was charged with criminal mischief. Both are set to appear in court later this month. Notably, neither subject arrested was personally involved in the vandalism. There was also a third attempted arrest of a subject who fled police on foot. IPD officers gave up their chase of the suspect and they went free. It's unclear if police will pursue a warrant. Then after continuing to occupy the street following the release of the two arrested, protesters made their way back to the Bernie Milton Pavilion on the commons before dispersing. Special thanks to Ithaca Voice reporter and WRFI contributor Anna Lamb for her help reporting on this story. The first death of a Tompkins County resident due to complications from COVID-19 occurred today, according to the County Health Department. A press release from the county notes that the individual was an elderly hospitalized patient who was admitted to Cayuga Medical Center on Monday, October 6th. Prior to this patient, Two other individuals transferred in from another part of the state passed away in the spring due to complications from the disease. Health Director Frank Krupa is reminding local residents to do their part to stop the spread of the novel coronavirus, adding, quote, we are tragically reminded that COVID-19 disproportionately impacts older adults, 
those who are immune compromised and those with underlying health conditions, unquote. At this time, no more information about the patient's death will be released to respect their medical privacy. Now looking at the local COVID-19 caseload, the latest numbers released over the uh, released today from the Tompkins County Health Department indicate that there are 11 additional positives and five new recoveries. According to the County Health Department, that leaves 42 active cases of COVID-19 in Tompkins. In addition, three patients are now hospitalized for complications from the virus. Over in Schuyler County, two people with COVID-19 are hospitalized at an out-of-county hospital. And there are two new cases of COVID-19 reported as of Friday. Both are members of the same household, according to the Schuyler Health Department. Today's numbers have not yet been released, but as of Friday, 12 active cases remain in Schuyler County. In addition, hospitalizations due to COVID-19 in New York State have reportedly increased by more than 70% in the last month. The Albany Times Union reports that there were 820 patients in hospitals statewide for COVID-19 complications, compared to 474 one month ago. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo says the increase in hospitalizations are occurring in red zones, including Orange and Rockland counties and Brooklyn and Queens. Patients that are in the intensive care units due to complications from COVID-19 have also increased in New York. 186 people are now in the ICU compared to 120 a month ago. This reflects an increase of 55%. New York increased the number of children with health insurance from 2016 to 2019, but a new report says the COVID pandemic threatens those gains. More from Andrea Sears with the Public News Service. A new study shows New York was the only state to see a significant decline in its number of uninsured children since 2016, but that progress is in jeopardy. Most states saw either more children without health insurance or no change in the percentage of kids covered. But the report from the Georgetown University Center for Children and Families shows from 2016 to 2019, the number of uninsured New York children fell by almost 11%. Kate Breslin with the Schuyler Center for Analysis and Advocacy credits state government and policymakers for the progress. Our state's leadership at all levels has prioritized health and coverage for children no matter where their families come from. But advocates for children's health fear the economic recession caused by the COVID pandemic will drive the number of uninsured children up nationwide and in New York. Joan Alker, who heads the Georgetown University Center for Children and Families, notes that bipartisan efforts on the national level had led to several years of progress in reducing the rate of uninsured children across the country. What we see now is that trend has clearly turned around since President Trump took office. And we're going backwards at an accelerating rate. She adds the largest increase in uninsured children was between 2018 and 2019 when the national economy was relatively strong. And Breslin points out that next month, the Trump administration and 18 Republican state attorneys general will ask the U.S. Supreme Court to rule that the entire Affordable Care Act is unconstitutional. It would be a big loss for our communities if the Affordable Care Act went away, and we would likely see an increase in uninsured across the board. Studies have estimated that eliminating the Affordable Care Act would mean about 20 million Americans would lose their health insurance. For New York News Connection, I'm Andrea Sears. 
Two new dorms on Cornell's Ithaca campus will be named after the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Toni Morrison, who are both alumni of the university. As reported by the Cornell Daily Sun, President Martha E. Pollack made the announcement on Friday, noting, quote, for both, those, for both these extraordinary Cornelians, we wanted to create a memorial that would be seen by and have its doors open to any person at Cornell, unquote. These dorms are part of the North Campus Residential Expansion Project. It's scheduled to be completed by the fall of 2022. No- notably, the building named for Morrison will be the first university building at Cornell named for an individual woman of color, according to Corey Ryan Earl, chair of the naming committee for the expansion project. It's Indigenous Peoples Day, and for many Native Americans, barriers to voting in persist. And the Supreme Court confirmation hearing in the Senate began today. More on the latest U.S. election news, courtesy of our friends over at Pacifica Network and the Public News Service. Welcome to 2020 Talks, where we track the 2020 elections in uncharted territory. I think that, honestly, the conditions facing Native Americans when they're trying to vote would be shocking to the average American. That's attorney Jacqueline DeLeon with the Native American Rights Fund. Today is Indigenous Peoples Day, and voting rights groups are ramping up efforts to make sure Native voters can overcome obstacles to the ballot. For example, just unreasonably long distances to the polls, as far as like 140 miles for in-person voting opportunities. You couple that with the inability for Native Americans to receive ballots at their home because of the lack of mail delivery often. So we have a real perfect storm for a lot of problems for Native Americans casting their ballots. Arizona, a swing state with contentious elections this year, has 22 reservations. On Navajo Nation, with just one post office every 707 square miles, there's been lengthy mail delays. Four Directions, a Native voting rights group, is part of a lawsuit to allow Arizona ballots to be postmarked by Election Day. Four Directions' O.J. Simmons is also a member of the Rosebud Sioux Tribe in South Dakota. You know, we're looking really hard and working with uh, Minnesota tribes, Wisconsin tribes, Michigan tribes, and North Carolina. So we're, we're actually looking at key battleground states. Including Pennsylvania, where Biden spoke to union members this weekend. And a federal court there ruled against the Trump campaign's attempt to limit Pennsylvania's drop boxes, require signatures to match registration records, and allow non-resident poll watchers at polling places. Suzanne Almeida is with Common Cause Pennsylvania. So it's no secret, right, that Pennsylvania is very much a target for partisan political actors who are looking to delegitimize and destabilize our elections. This year has broken records for litigation over voting access, and more is expected. Some will make it to the Supreme Court, one reason Republicans are eager to fill the open seat quickly. The confirmation hearings for Trump nominee Amy Coney Barrett begin today, just over two weeks after Trump announced her nomination at what Dr. Fauci has called a, quote, super spreader event. Law professor Eric Siegel with Georgia State University says confirmation hearings have historically gone on during election years, though none just a few weeks from the election itself. But we can't look at it that way because the Garland maneuverings changed everything. And for the Republican Party to say that President Obama didn't get a pick for a year, basically, but they can rush through this nomination, and of course, it's hypocritical. South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham, chair of the Judiciary Committee, controls the hearings. His opponent in November, Jamie Harrison, just broke the fundraising record for a Senate candidate in a single quarter, taking in $57 million in the third quarter. The previous record was $38 million. 
And on Saturday, Trump spoke from the White House balcony to hundreds of supporters dressed in campaign gear and waving flags. His first public appearance since being diagnosed with COVID-19. From Pacifica Network and Public News Service, I'm Lily Bolke. Thanks for listening. And that concludes our headline news for tonight. Coming up, two reporters explore issues surrounding environmental racism and what two local residents are doing to combat that. That's after the break on WRFI Community Radio News. Stay with us. You might slip, you might slide, you might stumble and fall by the roadside. But don't you ever let nobody drag your spirit down. Don't ever let nobody drag your spirit down by Wilson Pickett, Eric Bibb, and Linda Tillery and the Cultural Heritage Choir here on WRFI. I'm Michaela Savitt. And I'm Esther Rakusen. Up next on our program, you'll hear a selection from an episode of Ear to Earth, a special WRFI news series produced in collaboration with the Park Scholars Program at Ithaca College. First aired in May 2019, this four-part series tackles how climate change is impacting Tompkins County. Today, you'll hear two interviews about environmental racism. The first piece explores how resource policies affect communities of color, and the second half delves into climate issues facing the Cayuga Nation. Former News Director Laura Rosprout-Hellem starts things off. I'm not denying climate change, but it could very well go back. I would say the whole fracking debate. The level pace at which we're doing this is just too slow. This is Ear to Earth, a series looking beyond the simple stories of climate change in Tompkins County. It's a collaborative project between WRFI News and the Park Scholar Program at Ithaca College. In this segment, you'll hear a conversation with Ithaca College professor Pranitha Mudliar. Ithaca College's Skylar Eagle reported and produced this piece. Pranitha Mudliar is an assistant professor in the Department of Environmental Studies and Sciences at Ithaca College. She studies how marginalized communities are impacted by environmental issues and decisions related to climate change. The main focus of my research is so I study how communities make decisions about natural resources. So I've been looking at issues of diversity impact, what sort of decisions a community makes for managing water, what sort of power structures are embedded in those groups, who has a voice in that group, whose voices can be heard in the group. As we know, climate change really affects everyone, but how does it affect marginalized communities differently compared to a majority white suburb? This question is something that makes one think about how injustices have been constructed in the U.S. Uh, So those communities that are already exposed to systemic and structural disadvantages are the ones who are going to be more likely exposed to those environmental bads. And so if you're already exposed to those disadvantages, uh, it's you're already being underserved because of the government. So when you're going to be exposed to 
climate change disasters that's just going to exacerbate those systemic inequalities and injustices that you've already been exposed to from the start i think after hurricane katrina uh, the black congressional climate change caucus i forget the name but they put out a report called the uh, called climate change and african americans an unequal burden and they had three findings from that report about how climate change is going to impact african american communities and uh, one of the findings was that african americans are already being exposed to unequal health impacts uh, more deaths due to heat waves as compared to other communities uh, unequal economic hardships uh, unequal employment rates uh, so that is one finding the other finding was that uh, they weren't even historically responsible for climate change emissions but yet they are the ones who are more likely going to bear the burden of those uh, emissions and then the third finding was that if at all any policy is put in place to mitigate the impacts of climate change uh, depending on the way those policies are structured uh they could either benefit with respect to jobs and gaining employment but there could also be a continuation of the systemic inequalities uh for instance like putting a tax increasing energy prices because of carbon tax so on one hand that could bring jobs uh and employment if that doesn't happen they're going to bear the brunt of those increased energy prices so exacerbating those inequalities that already exist but is there anything like really specific um either environmentally related or politically re- related that's really contributing to it so i think the biggest issue is inequality so for instance if you take the example of uh, hurricane katrina uh in new orleans these communities were already facing substandard infrastructure and similar things that i mentioned before like the failing education system uh and then after the hurricane hit they were provided less government relief they were not given adequate information and i think there was also some statistics about uh african american communities received 8000 dollars less compared to their white counterparts because of disparity in those property prices Central so then the environmental justice work had focused on the environmental impacts of those emissions and only after hurricane katrina did they realize that there's something more to the story that those toxic emission producing industries are also producing greenhouse gas emissions which are going back into the atmosphere which resulted in the warming of the gulf and which strengthened the intensity of that hurricane so there was this opening up of linking of the climate justice talks with environmental justice and going beyond the impacts just on humans but even non-human species and that is when it became so clear that there are these systemic inequalities and unless you address those inequalities there's going to be poverty uh, environmental issues the way they impact people are going to be exacerbated Do you think the Flint water crisis kind of highlighted what marginalized groups face environmentally? Since the 1980s, a lot of evidence has been documented that certain communities disproportionately bear the impacts of toxic producing industries as well as just toxins and so it's nothing new, but 
for that to happen in such like just happened recently it's not very far off which shows that even today it does stand out to be one of the worst examples of environmental injustices and then given the response of the state and federal government in first uh dismissing the claims what people were saying about their water discounting them outright denying them dismissing them so that goes to show that even today that's the response that is given when communities are standing up and saying that there's something wrong listen to us for that to happen even today is people might say oh things are fine but then you know that it's actually not fine and that becomes a model for it could become a model for governments in other parts of the world to also similarly respond to whenever such uh, incidences occur and like you said it's still not over it's still going on and so it goes to show what the government really thinks needs to be done whenever such environmental injustices crop up What do you think the solution to that is? Are there ways that marginalized communities can kind of stand up to that inequality and fight for climate justice? Is there some kind of form of advocacy that they can do? Like what is what are the solutions to this? So there's this new idea about environment uh sorry, energy justice which is more specific compared to environmental justice or climate justice and it provides strategies about how to move a community to a low carbon uh, regenerative economy to move away from a fossil fuel based extractive one industry community to having multiple industries uh, so they've been mobilizing people to uh, they have things such as providing training in 3d printing skills or drone piloting uh welding metal art one of the pathways that provides a specific direction as to how do you exactly have an equitable and just arrangement for bringing people out of poverty as well as uh moving away from fossil fuel based extractive practices I had the opportunity to speak with Margaret Ann Bowers, better known as Poco. She is a member of the Cuban Nation and is an environmental activist. Poco was also a substitute teacher and volunteers at Southside Community Center. Recently, she talked to us about the environmental issues facing the Cuban Nation. My work at Southside was uh intending to encourage young people to garden. Um one of the projects with the Cuyuga Hodnesoni uh that was initiated in 2013 involved um gardening and honoring the three sisters, uh corn, beans and squash. Um these are they're not just um food to eat, but spiritual food with a lot of meaning. And um I I contacted my friend uh Katie and she was working with the young people after school. Poco then shares what she feels is the greatest issue facing the Cuyuga Nation today. I think the biggest challenge is is being heard and respected. And um I think that the biggest challenge is the doctrine of discovery. I think that the underlying uh 
false rule of law stems from that, and that is what all law that is in operation now is based on. And I, um, it's, it's profoundly horrifying. The Doctrine of Discovery was established by British monarchs to legitimize the colonization of lands outside of European countries. This doctrine allowed European entities to take land that belonged to indigenous people. This was all in the name of discovery. When asked how people in Tompkins County can better be allies to the Cuyuga Nation, she says one big thing could help. Respect. I, I, yes, I, I, um, and what I, I feel that for too often, words are put in their mouth and that's a situation that is happening right here in this town right now and no one chief speaks for the whole entire nation and um, there's a council and um, when things are taken to the council uh, uh, clan mothers uh, chiefs discuss it and the clan mothers tell the chiefs what to say Poco then describes what her approach should be to prevent further environmental issues. Exercising the ability to listen, and that means to listen to the lake and the lake's needs. I, I, I mean, when you consider what's happening to Cayuga's Lake r right now, in my feeling, my you'd ban all boats, you know, f for seven years. I mean, that's what that's what I was told in 1997. Uh, when lake source cooling was um, being proposed. So I think that you have to take those kinds of really drastic measures and choose what is best for the environment that includes all of us instead of dollars and cents. I, 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 all, always it's the profit making that is allowed to be the larger voice and it's we're in a crisis we're in a global crisis there's no <laughs> there's no uh, fooling around about that with years of disenfranchisement the Cuban nation has been hesitant to get help from individuals outside of the nation Poco explains how college students in particular can help the Cuban nation in the early 90s late 90s, there was a group of people, many from Ithaca College, and they, nine people, if I have that information correct, got together and they purchased 70 acres uh, in Union Springs, um, and it was called the Share Farm, Strengthening Haudenosaunee American Relations Through Education. And I it was an, a, a very exciting time because it brought, this group of people brought alliance um, and, and support. And they, the, my understanding is they paid the mortgage on um, and, and then gave the farm to the Cayugas. I, I think that that was a, a blooming example of, of what what can be done when we work with and listen to indigenous people. Well, I think that we need to all help each other. I don't fault students. 
I fault the system. Poco then gives an interesting approach to restoring our environment. The word environ means circle. The word mental means mind. And it's that circle mind. It's coming back to that understanding of what the natural cycles are. That's why I am a big proponent of breaking free of the bamboozle of the water flush toilet. We should not, I mean, solid stuff should be dry, dry. I mean, every culture on the planet knows that if you take it and dry it, then it can be fuel to burn or it can be fertilizer, you know, to, to grow something good. But to put it in water is just such a disgusting. So that's, to me, if we're going to support the environment, that would be the first thing you do. The second thing is you plant hemp, sunflowers, clover, oats, and peas. She goes back to this role of respect and how this can prevent a number of issues that exist in Ithaca today. I, I think it comes down to choice. And the choice is love or non-love. I, I, I really do think that it comes down to a moment-to-moment choice, as simple as that. Finally, Poco shares her thoughts on how we should approach environmental education, particularly with young people. And the other thing I would say is tell the children the truth. What do you think the truth is? I, 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 I know the truth is recognizing our own heartbeat and allowing that heartbeat to beat with the heart of the earth. And in that, we're not going to make choices to do harm. And, and, and to me, that's, that's the earth law, is free from harm, do no harm first. For WRFI News, this is John Turner. That was an episode of Ear to Earth, a collaboration between WRFI and the Ithaca College Park Scholars, first aired in May 2019. The full four-part series can be heard in its entirety at wrfi.org under the archives. The headlines at the top of our program were written by WRFI contributor Mark Kloman. Today's feature producers were WRFI contributors John Turner and Skylar Eagle with editorial supervision by former news director Laura Rosfrautellum. Esther Rakusin was my co-anchor today, and I'm Michaela Savitt, WRFI news director. Back tomorrow night and every weekday evening at 6 with more of the stories impacting our communities. On behalf of the whole WRFI news team, take care, be well, and have a good evening. One, two, three. WRFI. <laughs>